Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. So the shrub, we're back for round two, and right before we hit record, we were riffing on how uh, how your Twitter account has kind of exploded since since the first episode. And I went on to check how many followers you have, and you have exactly 66.6 thousand. <laughs> Which is, it's brilliant because it just ties in with the Gothlocks theory we're going to discuss later. It's just, it's just a beautiful thing. It's the number of the shrub. <laughs> the number of the shrub. So what has changed since we last chatted? I mean, I think it's, I think it's been over a year. Is there anything in your process or in Man, your it's, strategy it's, that's changed? Well, no, it's still still the same strategy, still the same process. Um, I mean, that this one year has been the most eventful year in our investing careers since 2008, probably. Um, I'm glad we got a lot of things right, speaking of that. Um, so we were, if you remember, my setup that I had in mind was uh, 1970 stagflation. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, we talked about uh, uh, supply constraints in the energy market. Um, also, you know, the stagflationary environment coming from like high energy prices that we were experiencing back in December already. And then obviously that all came to a head with the war in Ukraine. Um, so obviously that whole trade exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, the, the, the war in Ukraine should have would have just highlighted and uh, accelerated the situation so you know it showed that things were tight you know if you don't invest in your basic uh, 
you know, industries or energy, well, at some point you're going to pay the, you're going to pay the price. So, um, as with everything in, in investing, you know, the, it's all about the, you know, watching the downside and the upside takes care of itself that we discussed last time. That's mm -hmm. still the predominant theme. So, um, you know, a lot of these trades, you know, accelerated, unfortunately, but I think they would have done the same thing anyway over, you know, instead of 12 months, maybe in two, three years. That's on the energy and commodity side. Um, so that's, uh, that's the first thing. Um, what else did we have? So we had the 1970s stagflation. We had the energy market. We had the tin market. That's obviously been very, very tight. It peeled off. But again, that's like a structural uh, deficit. Um, I was, uh, I think the one thing we also warned about the tech market that it was overvalued at the time. So, mm -hmm. you know, I came in the year going long energy, short tech. Not a bad and pair trade. It was, a, I mean, look, it was a great pair trade that carried me, you know, it, it made my year in reality. Um, and then towards the end of uh, 2022, I actually kind of reversed that trade. Uh, obviously, I'm never going to be short energy, um, but I reduced considerably my energy exposure uh, towards the end of 2022. I still think it's a very structural, structural. Uh, it's a structural bull market, especially in certain parts of the energy market, like oil services. Um, but you know, things were just oversold in the tech space in some degree, mm -hmm. and that gave you some better asymmetric trades um and that's kind of where i developed this uh kind of nonsense theory because sometimes i tweet and i come up with like i woke up this morning you know i woke up uh, one morning and i was sometime in december i was like ah four 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 i didn't know what i was thinking about and i was like oh what if inflation hits four percent and unemployment hits four percent well, then the S&P is going to hit 4%, but what about the 10-year? Maybe it hits 4% as well. So I was like, oh, 4444. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, that's the number of the shrub, 4444. <laughs> and then I was kind of thinking more about this. And that's when I, I started thinking about it. Well, we spent the whole of 22 worrying about inflation. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, well, we're going to spend the whole of 2023 worrying about a recession. But when you go from an inflationary environment to a recessionary environment, there's a period that will make things look normal. Right. Because high inflation, you know, the one thing in 2022 that was very, very strange was we had this massive bear market, but unemployment was very low. We're still at like a three and a half percent. Yeah. So. So I was thinking, well, if we have this inflation coming down, and I was convinced inflation is going to come down because you could see it in everything, starting with you know, container rates, used car prices, energy prices. So inflation was coming down. But with rates so high and tightening, you would also expect recession to hit eventually. But you don't know when, right? Yeah. Because a recession to hit you know, it depends on people's savings. If they still have a job, obviously things are not going to be that bad for a while. So you will have a period that is going to look like a Goldilocks, but it's not really a Goldilocks because you know what's coming afterwards. It's going to be like a recession. So I called this the Gothilocks. 
So it's not like the Goldilocks, this nice girl that you're going to take home to your parents to meet and then eventually get married. No, you're going to meet this psycho girl that looks cool and it's exciting. But, you know, the moment you're having too much fun, she's probably just going to sacrifice you to Lucifer. That's how I, <laughs> <laughs> that's how I was like imagining it. So, you know, when, when I was tweeting this out and saying about Goldilocks, you know, I also came, you know, I also said at the end of December, well, actually, I'm fully invested. Uh, and I was buying stuff like Farfetch, for example, you know, just things that I would never really own. But because Gold, Gothilocks is not, is not actually a bearish setup. It's, it's a temporarily bullish setup. But you just don't know when to come out. <laughs> you know, you just you don't know when when to stop having fun. So um, I think January was a classic Gothilocks uh, situation, and now I don't know if this is going to last until you know February, March, or June, or or longer. Who knows? But um, but one thing I know for sure: the way I think about uh, the market, when you have that. One thing we have a problem in, in the market is we we can't because we're used to looking at flashing screens. We often forget that the real world has a different speed than the what I you know what our world you know the finance world. I call it the Ponzi world sometimes because <laughs> you know we're watching we're used to watching flashing screens and trade things mm -hmm. quickly, but actually things move much slower. So, you know, one example that I use um, to remind myself, so imagine you're a, uh, you're a house builder, yeah. you're a home builder, and rates go from 2% to 5%. Well, how long is it going to take you? So rates go from 2% to 5% by end of December. You think that this guy's pipeline is going to change in the next six months? It's not going to change because if I order a house, Going to take you two years to build a house or one year in the us you build faster but it's going to take the guy 12 6 to 12 months to complete his pipeline so the impact on his work which is construction is a big uh, you know big sector in a, a big employment sector the impact on his work is not going to be felt as soon as the fed raises rates right it's going to be felt six months down the down the road so that's why I try to think, you know, I try to think of things simply, you know, keep it simple, shrub, kiss. <laughs> so when you think it's simply, it's like, well, the employment market is tight, but, you know, don't forget there is a lag. And that lag could be six months, it could be 12 months. So it's just something to keep in mind. Um, so so that's why I'm, I, I think the, you know, the big part of, Gothilocks in some way has uh, played out, but you don't know when this is going to end. And right. the other thing I'm going to say is when you have rates at 5%, this money on the sidelines that is building up in equities and whatever, well, sometimes it doesn't need to come out of the sidelines if you're getting 5%. Right. So I was thinking about the risk reward in such way in the stock market like this. I, I phrased it like this. So imagine you have the S&P at... Uh, uh, 4,000, Fed funds at 5%. If you hold S&P, 
if you hold your money in cash, you make 5% guaranteed with 100% certainty. So what makes you get, what makes you buy S&P if you're making 100, if you're making 5% with 100% certainty, you would need at least a 10% to buy the S&P. So you would need to think that the S&P goes to 4,400 or 4,444, the number of the shrub. But, <laughs> but you know, that would be like, you know, 50-50 chance. So if, if you think that happens, well, we're like 5% away from the all-time high. And that all-time high, we hit it during the biggest money printing exercise in the history of the universe, of the known universe, mm -hmm. right? So, so that's why for me, you know, this is not a bearish call. I'm just saying that, you know, once you have fun in Gothilocks, you kind of want to say the easy money's taken. What's the risk reward from here? Especially yeah. since you, we, we don't have Tina anymore. You know, Tina's dead. Tina was the old Goldilocks. <laughs> is is this Gothilocks period, um, maybe to oversimplify it, is it just rotating where you're finding the highest asymmetric setups? Right. So for instance, you know, you said oil and oil field services. And a lot of these, if you look at the charts, like they are overextended. A lot of them have run up significantly. And you mentioned tech stocks that got crushed. A lot of them formed bases and were and were breaking out on 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 strong volume. And you had a lot of these short squeeze potentials. Uh you mentioned Farfetch. I know there was there were some other ones like Shopify that got squeezed a little bit. Um Cardlytics got squeezed. So is it is it something like that where you're just looking for these asymmetric setups and then on the flip side, like when you're trying to understand, okay, when do I, you know, when do I leave the party? When do I stop filling up the Kool-Aid? Um, like how, how, how do you then determine that, that sort of signal? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely that. Look, I, I try to buy things like, like you, I, I respect the technicals. Um, I know that's something we share deeply in common. So, um, you know, I, I liked the energy charts, you know, they were strong all year. But they got you know overextended towards the end. Um, still think structurally, you know, when when you have a long bear market, you sometimes have a long bull market. That's why I'm not completely out of certain segments like the oil services. I'm, I'm still in it. But you know, when you look at something, some of these tech bases, you know, when something is down ninety percent, you know, it's, it's the usual, the typical bear thing that they teach you to. You know, the wise guy is going to tell you. What's the difference between a stock that's down 80? Uh, you know, what's a stock that's down uh, 90? Oh, it's a stock that was down 80% and then it fell another 50%. Well, okay, I'll take you the other way around. What's, what's a stock that's down 80? Well, it's a stock that was down 90 and then it doubled. Yep. Right? So you come into end of 20, December, December 2022 and you see all these stocks down 90% doesn't matter if they're a piece of shit. Of course they are. But I mean, you can argue that for every company in the S&P, right? In some way. <laughs> so, so you see all these stocks down 90% with, you know, people started shorting them late in the party, as they always do. Um, you think, well, you know, the asymmetry is not in what I thought was asymmetric six months ago or 12 months ago. It's in these things. I mean, for example, Farfetch, which I sold, by the way, just to be clear. But, uh, you know, I bought this stock at $9 in uh, uh, 2020, okay? And I sold it at 12, unfortunately, and then it went to 70. So when you ask me the next question, we'll, we'll debate your question about <laughs> when to get off. You know, I'm the wrong guy to ask on this. <laughs> but, but, but I'll get yeah. to that as well. So, but look, so, so Farfetch, end of 20, 
2022 was at $3.80. You know, bear in mind, I bought this stock $9 two years ago. I actually think it's a good company, by the way. I'm not sure it's a great company, but I think it has a good platform in some way. So if you're buying at 380, now it's at seven, by the way. I sold it at like 630, whatever. Made 60% in three weeks. I'll take it and run. But uh, to the next question is, when do you get out? Well, dude, if you make 60% in three weeks, annualize that, it's a pretty good return. You know, you take money yeah. off, take two thirds off if you want to, you know, take it all off if you want. I took two thirds off, then I kept one and I, I sent that out as well. But why someone who is more disciplined in some way than me or thinking more long-term might actually write it. Now, if I didn't think, if I thought it was a new bull market, I would probably write it. But I have other, I also have other stocks that I actually believe in their valuations that would do as well in a bull market. So mm -hmm. the question is, how much do you believe in it? And do you have something else that you believe in its place? So for example, in 2020, when I sold Farfetch from nine to 12, I actually had also plug that we discussed in the last podcast, you know, yeah. that went from two to 20. So I kept that one. But yeah, I generally don't like having too much shit in my book, if you to be polite, you know, too many shit codes as per Fintwit uh, language. So I try to be quite concentrated in my, uh, no, quite selective. And, and you know, sometimes that works, um, that sometimes that doesn't work well. For example, I remember in, in our last conversation, um, I mentioned that I had a tech stock and I said, I have one moonshot stock, uh, which was Digimark. And I said, look, I'm actually quite bearish tech. I'm quite bearish all these unprofitable tech stocks, yeah. but I'm willing to, to punt on one of them. And that was Digimark. Well, that stock is down 50% since we last spoke, but I still <laughs> have it. So, yeah. so, you know, tough luck, but, um, so yeah, that, that's why I'm selective. But imagine when we had that conversation, actually, it's a very good lesson for whoever's listening. I actually said clearly, I'm going to punt on this one, but I will not have another tech stock in my portfolio except this one. And thank God for that, because all yeah. these stocks, you know, the rest of the stocks went down 90%. So, you know, down 50% on one 5% position or whatever, it's okay. Mm -hmm. But if I had, uh, you know, 50% of my NAV in these things, I'd be, I would have blown up. We would have been having a discussion about uh, something else today. <laughs> yeah, so. shrub, the shrub would have burned and, and, and it would have been <laughs> the a burnt combo. <laughs> the shrub would have become barbecue co uh, coal. <laughs> well, I think, I think that was the main issue. If you look back over this, this past year is a lot of, um, we'll call them like emerging small hedge funds. They all made a one factor bet that they just so happened to spread across maybe six to eight or four to four to eight names. And it was all just a bet on the interest rate movements and, 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 and low interest rates propping up unprofitable companies. And that's why it's important when you say, you know, Hey, I'm taking a punt on this. You're basically saying, look, I'm going to, I'm going to have exposure to this factor, but I'm going to limit it to this one 5% position. And the other important thing too, you know, you respect technicals, you've probably got a mental sort of price where if it trades below this, you cut. And so like when people hear 5%, they think, oh my gosh, you know, 5%, that's actually not a small size, but really you're saying 5% notional, but you're going to cut well before, you know, whatever it ever gets, gets close to zero. So you're looking at maybe a 100 to 150 basis point loss max. Yeah. And it also depends how the rest of your portfolio is doing. Exactly. For example, the rest of my portfolio, 
January 22, I was 60% long energy and 60% short tech. Yeah, so obviously, you know, the rest of my portfolio uh, was doing extremely well uh, mm. during that period. So if you have one, you know, one bet in a factory you don't like, it's okay. But it's when you just become arc, <laughs> you know, that's what you want to avoid. You want to <laughs> avoid becoming arc when, when you're not the factor of du jour. <laughs> how, how did you decide on, on betting on Farfetch? Like, did you, like, have you known that company for a while or do you run screens? Yeah, dude, I'm super like, lazy. No, I didn't do any, I don't do any screens or anything. I'm super lazy. I, I owned it like two years ago during the pandemic. Yep. I liked it then. I did the work back then. Um, incidentally, I mean, it's, it's almost embarrassing to say this, but, you know, fuck it. Uh, I, I would basically, I was, um, it was the, the wife of a friend of mine was telling us how amazing Farfetch was three years ago. And he's like, oh, that's a great company. So, you know, did some research, actually liked it. Um, bought it during the pandemic, made only like 30% instead of 10, 10x. Um, and come December, when I was looking for names that were beaten up, um, I saw Farfetch and I knew it before. So I, I like to think that there's like a mental, you know, every investor, and that's what I'm trying to do, like you need to have a mental uh, database. Um, where you just, you've done the work before, and if you've done the work before, when the event happens, you kind of, you know, you, you open that drawer in your brain and you access that file, so you just save your effort. So I was actually having lunch late December with a group of friends, and we started talking about Farfetch. And the women started talking about Farfetch and ASOS, and I looked at the charts, and I was like, oh my God, yeah, that's, that's the one I should be punting on based on my theory. So I, you know, I went home and I started working on ASOS and Farfetch. I mean, it was kind of the same thing. So they, they both did like 60, 70%. But it was the trigger to just say, and it was another stupid argument, by the way. So I was having lunch in Cyprus. I mean, Cyprus is this tiny island of 600,000 people in uh, the Mediterranean. So I was thinking, well, hold on. If these women are talking about Farfetch and ASOS and they're so happy with their servers in Cyprus, well, the guys in uh, London and New York must be loving it even more. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so look, I mean, I, I took a big position after I, I went home and I just looked at everything again. Um, and, and the thing that helped me a lot with Farfetch specifically, because I looked at a few other ones, I looked at Twilio and uh, um, uh, Ring Central. Mm -hmm um spotify which i should have bought uh for no reason whatsoever shopify which i should have bought um and farfetch the one thing that helped me a lot was they had this investor day in december yeah they came into it at 850 the stock was at 850 the ceo started opening his mouth and as soon as he gave his projections the stock went from 850 to five wow and i was like Oh my God, this guy's a real idiot. I mean, excuse the, you know, excuse my language for the guy. Really, maybe, and I, I'm being unfair. But I was like, oh, this guy's an idiot. Why did he even do an investor day? You know, it's like, why do you do an investor day as a company if the moment you open your your mouth, the stock is down fifty? So anyway, <laughs> I, I'm being unfair to him because you know he's a visionary in his space. But uh, you know, as the as, as this as the time progressed, the stock went from eight to three eighty by the end of December because everyone was selling for tax losses. 
So at that point, it became like, well, hold on. You know, it's getting a bit silly. That that's where it's becoming asymmetric. It would need to rally by a hundred percent to get to where it was, you know, to the investor day, one hundred fifty percent rally. Um, so you know, all these things came together: the sell-off from the event day, the tax selling in December, and the fact that I had looked at it again. It just made it quick and easy to to pick it up. Um, now, you know, why I'm not in it still? It's a different story. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'll be proven wrong again, and I'll be the guy who's uh, celebrating a sixty percent where I would have made six x. But you know, it doesn't really matter if if you make fast money on something. You know, you just take it. I mean, I've learned not to be too emotional about uh, yeah. leaving money on the table as long as there's money in my pocket. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, you bring up you bring up a fascinating point about idea generation um, because I think this industry tends to try to systematize and codify every aspect of it and yeah really what i've found is like some of the best ideas can come up from just natural conversations with you know your spouse or you know your friends or just random people that you know or you know you read a magazine or you read a journal article and you're like oh i didn't know this company existed or you know something like that and um you know like a great example and th this isn't a company that i've invested in but i put it on my watch list was the container store which is just like a really expensive organizational slash closet company. Um, and I, I I knew of them because my wife was like raving about them. She was like, oh, let's go to container store. I just want to look around. I want to look at all this cool stuff. And she like loves organization and all this. And um, you know, I looked, I looked at the company and read read through some presentations. I'm like, man, like this company is actually a pretty solid business. Um, it's generated tons of profit consistently and it's gotten crushed over the last you know year so really really since march of 2021 it's you know it's gone from 20 bucks down to five and it was one of those things where i probably would have never found it had i not just you know been chatting with my wife and 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 she mentioned hey can we go to the container store so it's just it's just cool that you know this is really how a lot of the ideas happen and you can't put that on a pitch deck you know, if you're a hedge fund, like, oh, your idea generation process, you know, like dinner conversations with my wife. <laughs> but actually, I, I mean, look, I got far-fetched from, a, you know, lunch with my wife and, and our friends. So yeah. great friends, by the way, one of the friends at, at lunch, he also bought the stock after I told him. So, and he was telling me this is the best, fastest money I've ever made on a stock. <laughs> so, but, you know, what's wrong with that? You know, we're making money and we're talking, we're having nice conversations with our wives as well. Perfect. There you go. Match made <laughs> so, in heaven. Oh, by the way, you got married after our first conversation, right? I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Well done, man, again. Yeah, it's, um, it'll, be a, it'll be a full year in uh, a month and uh, 24 days. Hey, well done. Thank so you. So this is the thing. I mean, idea generation, like if, if you're going to do the screens are okay, they kind of help, but you need a bit something else beyond that. And, you know, just on idea generations, and I will commend you on that because I've heard... Uh, two of your podcasts in the last few weeks and they were phenomenal with uh, Nick Radical yep. and uh, my buddy Logos. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I, I enjoy listening uh, to your stuff because, you know, Nick Radical, for example, okay, you know, smart guy, I'm actually invested. Uh, I was invested in coal at the same time that he was. I was in, I'm invested in offshore rigs like he is. So we kind of, we kind of have like a bit of an overlap in a few things. You know, you listen to the guy and he brings up skyscrapers. I've never looked at skyscrapers in New York. So, okay, that's cool. And then I listen to Logos, you know, like, 
Oh shit! Because I, I'm actually really excited about uh, uh, you know biotech and uh, medtech and stuff that I. Oh yeah. Because I I know little about it, but during the summer last year, I was actually buying a lot of uh, random stuff that I didn't really know much. So I was, you know, listening to listening to him talk about it, uh, and certain companies. I mean, I was getting really excited. I mean, you know, both both his podcasts with you were you know fantastic to learn. And uh, then, you know, you have guys on Twitter that are specialists or on their individual stuff. Um, uh, and this is a very strong area. I mean, we're very lucky. I mean, I, I find Twitter is the best research platform I've ever used in my life. And I'm including, you know, your podcasts and, the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the relationships out of Twitter in this whole FinTwit thing. I mean... Man, the idea generation is just way better than anything you're going to get from the sell side. I mean, I used to yeah. spend, no joke, in, not not from my money, but when you know when we were at the hedge fund, you know, we're spending millions on research, and I can say that what I get for free from <laughs> Twitter is like it's better. <laughs> yeah. So it just yep. it, you just need to have the you just need to have the spark. You know, like you sit with your wife and she talks to you about Container Store and, you know, any normal person would be like, oh, man, she's going to spend money on Container Store again. But you're like, oh, my God, Container Store. I'm going <laughs> to. I was a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you want to hedge your bet. So that's what we that's said. Right. Like I, I hedged my, my wife's uh, online spending habits by buying Farfetch. So, <laughs> so that's how you look at it. But And, you know, these ideas are much are more unconventional because... They're not pitched by Goldman Sachs uh, yeah. that uh, all you know all the money is going to chase. So they're much more exciting and interesting ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I think on the, I think on the flip side of that though, there's now an even more important uh, skill, which is learning how to quickly say no to bad ideas. Oh, because yeah. like Twitter has proliferated, you know, you can you can you can drown in new investment ideas, but then the problem becomes, okay, like how do I decipher quickly the good from the bad? Because everyone's got the same amount of time in a day. And if you spend, you know, half that day going down the rabbit hole on a terrible idea, that's time you could have spent researching a great idea. So instead of spending an hour or two on a bad one, you could say, you know, take five minutes and say no, and then move on to the next one. Yeah. So, you know, I have this series, the uh, shrubs corner of the FT. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I started this joke thing. I don't know why I did it once. I just took the, like, if I can fit my investment idea at the corner of the NFT, then it's a great idea. So I did it first with um, Carver, which was my first one. Maybe it was a tin stock. It was a tin stock. And like then it was an offshore. Yeah, I think it was Alphamain or Metals X. I think maybe it was Metals X at 20 cents and now it's at 40 cents. So it kind of doubled. And then Valaris at 50, now it's at 70. Uh, but, you know, these things were quite easy because, you know, they were like Valaris, for example. Let me just see if I can find. Uh, so, you know, Valaris, it was like, oh, look, if offshore rates go to, you know, for this, is, it's an offshore rig company. So and they, were, they, were what, post, they were they were they were a post bankruptcy play, post bankruptcy play offshore rigs. So classic capital cycle situation that basically yep. you know you don't no one builds rigs anymore uh for various reasons well all these companies went bankrupt uh during the last cycle um and uh, that's one thing then with esg no one you know the, the investments uh, on the offshore space were 
diminished, but even more importantly, the, the shipyards, there's no, there's no orders in the shipyards for rigs because all these shipyards, they don't actually want to build rigs for anyone. Yeah, because last time around, they, yeah, they got screwed last time. So, so if you look at the, you know, you, if, if you look at the supply demand situation, the demand is strong, but the supply is like, I have never seen something like that. It's like, there is no supply of rigs. <laughs> so, so, you know, I put that out on a corner of the FT. So I was like, oh, look, corner of the FT analysis makes a pitch for the worst industry in the world, offshore drillers, market cap 4 billion, net debt zero. So Valaris is on eight times EBITDA today's rates, but 1.4 times EBITDA at 2014 rates. There you go. So I just put it in a corner of the FT. So it's as simple as that. Or, you know, the latest one, I, and the, you know, the stock is up 50% since then, 60%, whatever. Um, so going back to the, the idea, it's if you can make something really, really simple, yeah. then for me, it's going to work. And by the way, I, I haven't used Excel all of last year. I think I used it twice. And uh, I was joking that maybe it's the two times that I lost money on those trades. I don't know. But that's really I, wild, I, though, like when you think about it. I, I mean, I've used the corner of the FT more times than a spreadsheet. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm going to, like, I mean, what you see at the corner of the FT is, is how my, my sheets uh, look. I mean, you, you know, you, you, have a, you have a view of my, uh, of my screen. So, you know, just let me see if I can rotate it. But, you know, this is, I just literally write down numbers. <laughs> Yeah, it's like little, you know, and obviously for those that are listening, it's like, you know, you've got this like small journal and it's probably like a quarter of a, of, of, of a full page of a journal. Yeah, pretty much. So, so that's why, um, you know, or, or the latest one I've done, uh, buyer, which is my biggest position by long yeah, way. Yeah, right that one, that one's super interesting. So why, yeah. don't you, why, don't, why don't you riff on that? Because I found that when we were DMing about different topics and, you know, again, it's I'm a little bit turned off because it's a some of the parts play and I've gotten burned oh, yeah. in some of the parts before and like <laughs> I just don't like them, but um I like Haven't some of the all? businesses that they're in. And so I think a lot of the businesses that are in the some of the parts have strong tailwinds. So why don't you just riff on how you found it and and, and the thesis? Yeah, sure. So um buyer, I've known it's it's again one of those memory bank situations. I've known it in 2018 when I was doing event. Um, German company has three divisions, pharma, uh, consumer care, which is basically buying, uh, off the shelf drugs like aspirin, um, and then crop science, which is Monsanto. Um, so I came across this company in 2018 when they bought Monsanto and I was doing an event and I was actually doing an emerger arbitrage on long Monsanto for, for the ARB. So they bought Monsanto in 2018 for 63 billion. And back then, everyone was like, what the hell? Are Why is a pharma company buying a you know, herbicide uh, crop science company? Well, they bought it. They didn't put it to a shareholder vote. Um, and they inherited with it glyphosate liabilities yeah. that they were guiding at the time, I remember very clearly, and that was getting me nervous, that they said, oh, it's just, you know, with the Germans, you know, sometimes the Germans are very rigid in their approach uh, without meaning to be racist, but it's it's a cultural thing. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, 
this is only a 300 million uh, liability. Well, yeah, the guy was right, but that, that was 300 million for only one claimant. So, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so, so immediately, so the one claimant was awarded like 320 million or something, something insane. So obviously everyone was lining up to sue them for glyophosphate uh, uh, liability. So that, that was building up. So they spent the next five years in courts about Monsanto. Um, and during that period, the stock price went down from uh, 90, let's see. So they, the, the stock price went down from 90 to 56. So they lost like, they lost pretty much the 63 billion they paid for Monsanto. Yep. They lost it in uh, market cap. So you get Monsanto for free. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing is, um, and then the CEO, and, and it gets better actually. So, so people were rushing into it. I think there were a few activists rushing in soon afterwards. And there was like a series of uh, uh, activists coming in, including uh, Elliot in 2019. Um, but the management was very rigid and it was it's the only time in german history that a ceo was voted out at the agm that he lost the vote of confidence at the agm wow but he didn't resign interesting because in germany it's all about your vote of confidence you just say you like the guy you don't like it and you know people said we don't like you but the guy just stayed <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward um to 2022 and this is where i get involved so yep. this was dead money for five years and i see uh i i actually was long regeneron at some point which i think is a fantastic company and i see one headline um about you know the regeneron has this eye drug called ilia and it's one of the highest value drugs fantastic drug and uh, they got, and they had received some clinical trials for higher dose ILIA, and the stock price of Regeneron was up like 20%. Um, and then I looked at Bayer at the same time, and uh, Bayer was flat on the day, it was up 1%. What people didn't realize was ILIA was 50-50 with the buyer. So Regeneron was making 5.8 billion a year from Ilia and buyer was making mm -hmm. 4.7. So to recap, you know, you had um, Regeneron was 75 billion market cap and it added 15% to its market cap, 20% to its market cap. So $15 billion. Yeah. And buyer, which is a $50 billion company, added 1%. So at that point, I was like, there's something wrong here. Yeah. And I started doing work on the company. Now, I have a view about the US versus Europe. You know, in the US, it's uh, every piece of news you will most likely, every piece of news will most likely be taken as bullish, even if it's not. In Europe, every piece of news will most likely be taken as bearish, even if it's not. So the Europeans are just very, very conservative about these things. But, you know, this stoked my interest. So I started doing more work on buyer. 
And I was, you know, very surprised because their pharma business um, was a weak spot for them before Monsanto. That's actually why they did Monsanto. And their pharma business over the last five years, it actually, and the reason why it was weak is because it had two main drugs there with patent clips. They had Xarelto, um, which was their main drug, and it was close to a patent clip. But um, then they had Ilia, which was a JV with Regeneron, and that started making a lot of money. Um, and that's actually two thirds of uh, Regeneron's uh, sales comes from Ilia. So it's a pretty big thing. Um, and then I looked at their pipeline, and their pipeline of uh, buyers is actually fantastic. Um, they have a drug called Asudexium, which is the most promising drug in their pipeline. And that's mm -hmm. a next generation anticoagulant. Um, it's now going to be in phase, um, did well in phase two, and it's going to do, uh, so now it's in phase three. So, you know, it's a few years away, but it just shows that the pipeline has a, uh, a lot of value. Um, and incidentally, there, there was a very interesting article in, uh, in Bloomberg that said um, the blood thinner market is a $55 billion market and blood clots are estimated to cause about one in four deaths worldwide. Wow. So this is going to be a big, big space. And the, the companies in this is going to be Bayer, Bristol Myers, uh, Johnson & Johnson. So, uh, so basically, you have uh, a very undervalued pipeline within Bayer. And that's, that's the one business. The second business is the consumer care business, which is a over-the-counter drugs. Like I said, the aspirins, dermatology, the nutritionals, and Bayer is a household uh, brand. Um, and similar companies trade at like 15, 20 times sales, uh, 15, 20 times PE. But what's interesting is um, a lot of these companies have been, um, the consumer healthcare divisions have been spun off from their parents in the last 12 months. Right. So, there's consolidation, you know, GSK was looking at the space. So there's a Johnson and Johnson is looking to spin it off. So, um, so I think, you know, this is again, a, a very important part of buyer and, uh, I'll go through the sound parts in a bit, but that's another part. The third part and the most important part that's keeping people behind is Monsanto. Now, Monsanto is actually a fantastic company. It's the number one company in crop science in the world, in seeds and herbicides. And, uh, you know, the split is about the seeds are 25% of sales. The glyphosates are 25% of sales, which is Roundup. And then we have the fungicides and insecticides and all that. Now you have a competitor like Cortiva that trade out 25 times earnings. So the Americans, yeah. if they had Monsanto in the US, X litigation, this would have been a very valuable company. Now. Yep. Um, if I put all these things together, um, I will get, if I put a 10% discount to Cortiva, 10% discount to the other pharma peers, and 10% discount to, uh, to the consumer healthcare peers, crop science is about 80 euros a share, pharma is 47 euros a share, consumer healthcare is 18 euros a share, and take out the debt, you have a sum of parts of 94 versus a current price of 56. So you have a 70% upside, upside on a company that's $50 billion. Now, why do we have this thing? Let's start with the simple thing. Um, 
some of parts, you know, are usually a pretty crap way to lose money. You and I agree. Yeah. Yep. But here we actually have three very, very good businesses. So um, Monsanto is a good business. The pharma is very promising with a strong pipeline. And the consumer healthcare, well, there's a chance that they sell it or spin it off. So the two things that are holding back people, three things, is uh, starting with the easy ones. The fact that you have a CEO who messed up big time, it's the same CEO that did the Monsanto deal. So the fact that he's there is extremely negative. It would hold back any value investor or any anyone with a fiduciary responsibility that puts value to management. It would hold them back from investing. That's the one thing. Yeah. The second thing is the the trigger that I had about Regeneron being up 15%, but Bayer not moving on pharma news actually triggered me to see who covers the stock. And it's kind of sleepy analysts that don't really, they don't really understand the Monsanto side or they don't understand the pharma side because it's kind of a hodgepodge. You know, you can't have a pharma guy doing work on Monsanto or you yeah. can't have a chemicals guy doing work on uh, the pharma pipeline. So the coverage is a bit weird. And the third and most important thing is um, people got burned a lot from uh, the litigation side. Um, and because this has been going on for five years, they lost track of where we are. And I think this is a very important point to highlight. So people are a bit lazy to do the work here because of the specialist angle. So let's just make it simple. In 2020, um, so to start with, Bayer had a very bad approach in their litigation initially. That's why they lost. So when, when they lost the case in California, there wasn't really a case about uh, Roundup causing cancer because the subsequent studies showed that uh, lymphoma, which was a very specific type of lymphoma, didn't really have any uh, specific cause. Like they did a whole study and it was like, well, we can't really pinpoint where lymphoma comes from. So you can't really say, well, Roundup causes lymphoma. That's right. the first thing. But in June 2020, they reached a buyer reached a class action settlement for $10 billion. And they covered 75% um, of the cases. And they put money aside. And they even put 3 billion euros on the side for holdouts. And then something weird happened. Even though they lost the first cases, buyers started winning cases. So they actually won five cases and lost three cases. And on top of that, the U.S. law firms that were part of the settlement, they said that we're not going to take any, uh, they wouldn't take part in, uh, uh, in the further litigations. So you have a very strange situation that um, the holdouts are there, but buyer is winning. And all these funding litigators, these uh, litigation funders, they're getting a bit nervous because they're seeing the value of their claims just getting lower and lower. Yeah. Because time is running out and buyer is winning. So when people are held back by this litigation, it's actually, I tell them, well, hold on, you know, it's 75, 80% covered. It's put behind. And then, uh, uh, and then you know, the company is going to have a clean slate in the next 12 months. And mm -hmm. here is where it gets more interesting, I think. The company is making about 
six billion free cash flow a year. They can make more. They could make eight billion if everything is perfect. They can make eight eight billion. Okay. Right. But let's say it's making six billion a year. But they were spending like three billion a year on litigation provisions and restructurings. Yeah. So <laughs> that's a lot you, of cash tied up. It's a lot of cash. So these guys were waiting. I mean. That's why the stock went from 90 to 55, because they were burning their cash. Think about it this way. It's like the banks after the GFC, that they were spending all that money in provisions for litigation. I was just about to say that. It's, 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 it's same the same thing. thing, like a bank getting 200, 300% of you know, loan, loan loss provisions or something. It's the same thing. And I remember, because I was unfortunate enough to be a bank analyst, it's once you start seeing the end of those fines, like the BAC, then the... Once you start seeing the, the end of those fines, all those the banks started re-rating because you had a clean, normalized yep. uh, free cash flow or whatever. So same situation here. So imagine you have a 50 billion company. Um, you thought it was making 3 billion free cash flow, but it's actually making six if there's no provisions and no litigation uh, uh, provisions and restructuring charges. So, you know, Six divided by fifty. Well, you know, you're you're like twelve percent free cash flow yield, and uh, you know, six seven times earnings. Yeah. And and this is a fifty billion. We're talking about a fifty billion company. I'm not even giving you like a small cap that's under the radar, but yeah. But it's just sitting there. Um. So it was just sitting there for, you know, for someone to to get activist, uh, and thankfully a few weeks ago. Um, Jeff Ubin, he bought a stake. Then there was another activist that bought a stake. And now, more importantly, because I wouldn't put too much, um, I, I would put some value to, to US activists, but I think it's more important in this case, the fact that there's German institutions that also came up and, yeah. they, said, and they said, no, the CEO has to go. And the important thing about thinking a timeline, because if you remember from the last thing, uh, from the last podcast we did, I, I always look at timeline because I, I, I value the time value of my money. <laughs> so the AGM is, uh, is coming soon in a couple of months. So I think the reason why all these activists and the German investors are coming out is because they see a window to replace the CEO before his term expires in 2024. They see a window to replace him uh, in the next couple of months. So I right. think when that happens, uh, when you get fresh, uh, fresh management on board, then you can start seeing things like, okay, now the direction is more clear and now we can do stuff like, you know, if they sell consumer healthcare, well, that's 18 euros a share. Yep. You know, that closes the discount. You know, if the discount is 68%, man, if I just close it at 30%, it's already like a big win <laughs> and it's still more to go. But I think that's why I'm super excited about this one. And also I'm excited by the fact that just the pharma, because you know me, like I'm not ashamed to say that I trade stuff and I get out, but here I actually see a case where even the pharma pipeline could make this a double in the next three years. So that's yeah. why I'm genuinely excited about this. It's a, it's a, it's a really interesting play. And like you said, it's, it's this like elephant that's just out in the middle of the Sahara that no one is 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 noticing i mean it's this this big 50 billion dollar company and if you if you were to think now like i i i i agree with you i i i think there's a lot of strong tailwinds in kind of each of these businesses right because agriculture and 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 having a reliable sustainable food source is going just to be even more important and then consumer health you're seeing a massive shift in, in people caring about their health personalized health 
taking ownership of their health. Um, where do you think you can go wrong here? Is it just a matter of, hey, management can't, you know, the 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 old um, hated manager can't leave. He, he, he doesn't end up leaving and somehow he just continues to destroy shareholder value. Is that is that kind of how you see a potential uh, losing situation? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the two losing uh, cases is one, um, say the litigation, because, you know, I'm, I'm not a litigator or a legal expert, say this drags on a bit longer. Um, that's the one thing. And two, more importantly, I think, um, I think more importantly is the the CEO just entrenches himself and says, no, no, my, my term expires 2024. I'm going to stay it until 2024. Or actually equally bad is if they if they put a CEO, if it's an internal hire for a CEO, I think that would actually be taken as bad because, mm -hmm. you know, these are, it's the guys that were involved in Monsanto. So you, you need a fresh start. You know, you need to have a clean, uh, clean slate. So I think that's what could go wrong. And that's why I'm actually very glad to have, uh, you know, uh, this cadre of, uh, of activists and, and, and as well, the Germans stepping, stepping up on this because it, it's, it's very, very important that, that they voice their concern. Yeah. I wonder if you could play this with like long dated options. Have you looked at that or is it too illiquid? I, I have. And, uh, I, I have to say that the, you know, the, the majority of my position is actually long-term options. The volatility cool. is very, very cheap. Nice. Um, I like uh, using options um, when it's cheap, and uh, in this doesn't case, doesn't tie up cheap. a lot of capital. That's for sure. It doesn't tie capital, and you know, capital is precious. Um, so I use it this way with longer dated uh, options. I, I think this is like um, depending on your time horizon. So you know, if you if you're an event event driven investor, you know, you give it twelve months, uh, but maybe even six months. And if you're a fundamental investor, you know, if, like I said, I think this is a double over three years. So, you know, you just can even buy the stock if you want. So, but yeah, we're lucky that the volatility on this one is actually very cheap because it's a, it's seen as a sleepy uh, German stock. I mean, it's done nothing. Like you see, you see the stock over the last uh, five years, it's hovering between 40 and 56. I mean, the lowest, but it's li like literally range trading, 50 to 60 range. Yep. Oh, and yep. it pays a 4% dividend and it's on seven times earnings. <laughs> so. Yes, you get paid 4% to wait. So, I mean, you could, if you wanted just to do, you know, split your position, half equity, half long dated options and collect some of that, premium, you know, collect some of that yeah. uh, dividend. I think there's lots of ways to skin the cat depending on uh, how you want to play it. I'm, yeah, I like both personally. So I'm in both. So I want to reach, uh, I want to reach a discussion on how you can gain an edge and level up in, in, in investing. And I think, I think what makes you a great investor is you've, you've kind of gone through this, this, this inverse laughing curve of like starting out, you know, really simple businesses and then thinking that you need to understand these complex things. And then by the time you get, you know, a certain experience and, 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 and you reach a certain level, you realize, Oh, it's actually back to the simple stuff that matters. Um, so what are, what, what are some ways that newer investors or, or, or people that want to level up, let's say, in oil and gas or in commodities and metals? Like, what are what are the things that they can do and read, like on a daily basis, to 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 reach that level of understanding? 
Yeah, I think that the most important thing for any investor is to be curious. So curiosity is an investor's greatest strength because when you're curious, you go and you find things. Like we said before, you know, you have a conversation, it triggers you. Um, so that's the first thing. I mean, you know, every morning, um, I actually try to detach myself from the market. I actually uh, listen to uh, a podcast or uh, read a book or go for a walk and listen to an audiobook. Yep. Um, I'm actually going to read a book called Crude Volatility next that was recommended yeah. by a Twitter friend. So, yeah. Rory, so, Rory Johnson recommended that to me, so I got to read Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, so, so you have to be curious and you have to search. The one thing that I, I will repeat is Twitter is a very valuable platform. Um, to start with, I mean, oil and gas, when I invested for the first time in oil and gas, I didn't know anything about oil and gas. Bear in mind, I've been investing professionally for 15 years, right? And yep. I hated the oil and gas space. And because I always covered mining or, or you know, financials, um, I, oil and gas was never on my, on my desk. So I never professionally looked at it. And, um, you know, the first stock I bought was Sandridge because, uh, you know, I saw this guy, Josh Young and Coopy. <laughs> copy <laughs> you know talk about sandridge yep. and uh, because i knew it from before because i saw icon had invested started doing work on sandridge and you know i was like oh you know this thing is like trading at you know zero enterprise value fantastic who cares about the oil and energy side <laughs> so you yep. know i started from there and it was you know it was thanks to josh and copy <laughs> that i had my baptism of fire and energy and then you know you find other guys in the energy space, I mean, there's so many smart guys that I've been following on the energy space in 2020-2021. I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that. <laughs> By the way, it's been a great trade. But um, you know, you have such a diverse group of people. Even uh, you know, in the energy space, for example, on on Twitter, uh, you know, the lady uh, at Twitter handle I think is she drills, I think, and uh, you know, she. She was actually running an oil rig, <laughs> so, so I spoke to her about oil rigs, and then, you know, randomly I tweeted out about buyer, right? So I did my corner of the FT on buyer, and you know, one guy tweeted something about uh, the litigation, and he says, "How do I know this? Well, I, I'm a I'm a litig I'm a litigation funder," <laughs> and I was like. Oh my God. So he said, you know, he said something very insightful that, you know, these litigation claims, they actually have a time value because they use a lot of leverage nowadays. So he says, how do I know this? Well, I'm a litigation funder. It's like, oh my God. So point being is, you know, young people who care about finding a new industry, they have the best resource I've ever seen in their hands with Twitter and social media right now uh, to just go, go out and find it. I mean, yeah. you know, in the energy space, I mean, these guys on the energy space, they've been having uh, uh, five-hour uh, long spaces uh, calls every Tuesday. <laughs> so so they're, 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 like, they go properly deep uh, in the area. Uh, mining as well, the mining community was very strong. Um, on the MEM side, obviously, there's a lot of MEM art, <laughs> you know, MEM specialists. 
Yep. But, you know, th there's always someone that knows something and, uh, you know, people should just be encouraged to, to engage. Like, if you don't engage and you're just sitting there, you're, you're going to get what, uh, what you put in, you're going to get. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I put a lot of effort in Twitter because I actually, I actually get out quite a lot from it as well. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy it first of all because you know half the time I'm bored and I just want to shit post a bit. But you know, I I get out, I get out of I get out of Twitter a lot and you know had very uh, great relationships out of it. So, um, so that's that's one. And then two, obviously, we said reading. Um, reading is very important. And uh, what else? I mean, what what do you think? Um, I mean, I just think then the reason the reason I ask this is because I had a meeting, I had lunch with. Um, a friend that runs that runs a pretty decent sized fund, uh, long short fund, and I asked him about his research process because every person I ask, I'm always like, "Hey, how do you level up? How do you, you know, how do you do this? Like, what what do you do? What's changed? What do you do now that you didn't do that you wish you did?" And the one common denominator I hear is people just say you have to talk to actual people. Like you have to talk to people in the space. You have to, and this is this is very counterintuitive. But you know, they say like you have to put down the 10k in the annual report and go talk to people that live in the space. And you know, this guy that I had lunch with, I I, I asked him after you know he kind of he kind of said that, and I'm like, so like you know, do you read annual reports really at all? And he's like, honestly, I can't tell you the last time I read an annual report if I wanted to learn about an industry. He's like, I just I just go and find somebody. I find somebody smart in the space, and I just pick their brain. So yeah, so let me let me elaborate on that because it's a very important point. So when I was at a hedge fund, you know, we had the best research in the world. We, you know, we paid the whole street. We had access to every single analyst out there. And um, you know, when I left, uh, when I left the industry, well, I'm still in the industry in some way. But when I lost that massive platform, I was a bit nervous initially that oh I'm going to lose the best uh, researchers in the world and then I realized holy shit you know these guys don't know anything because because once you start speaking to the people in the space the energy guys that do it themselves or or even retail that dwell deep there's like some guys that just go really deep in the situations you get much more value than the guy you know the wall street guy that covers 100 companies and just cares about quarters because nowadays, you know, all these guys, they don't, they're not, you know, their incentives have changed. Yeah. You know, they have to feed the quarterly earnings machine because, you know, the more, the biggest hedge funds nowadays, they want to generate commission. They want to, you know, they want to trade. So they yep. play the earnings. So all these analysts, they tell me about the EPS and this and that. Like, you know, I only had one call with an analyst all of last year and that, that was on buyer. And that was, that was actually for me to tell him what I thought, <laughs> yeah, Hope, hoping that he will write it properly. But that was the only call I did because I really don't get any value of, I don't care about quarters, for example. I have zero interest in investing for a quarter. So immediately that kills 90% of uh, <laughs> my interest in research. And I stopped yeah. reading uh, mainstream research. I prefer to, you know, just go about it myself or, uh, 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 you know, I, I would, Instead of, by the way, one other great resource I would say is instead of reading the 10K, find a good presentation or a good webcast yep. of the company. So I prefer to do that. When I, when I put myself down to look at a company, I want to see the guy speaking. 
yeah. don't care about his 10K. I actually just check the balance sheet on the 10K. I don't check anything else. Um, but I want to see the guy speaking, and I want to. So I want to see the guy speaking, and I want to see what his history was online, and I want to check his background on a personal basis. So, for example, you know, I was looking at a company today. The guy had like uh, three red flags before, and botched an IPO. So, I'm, okay, immediately, you know, you just throw that out and move on to the next one. Yep. But you know that that's what I care about. And sometimes, even bizarrely, um, the reason why I like to see the guys present is to to categorize him if he's a promoter, a company builder, <laughs> or a serious guy in some way. Yeah. You know, like for example, when the Farfetch. Uh, CEO spoke and the stock was down 50%, you know, immediately you can't put him in the promoter category because, you know, he threw his stock down 50, but, yeah, but, you know, you give him the benefit of the doubt because he's, you know, he's trying to build the, you know, his vision is to build a company. So that's fine. So you put him in a separate category, but then you look at a ju junior minor CEO. Oh my God. You see the guy speaking. It's like, he's discovered, uh, you know, uh, the, <laughs> the biggest discovery in the world, the biggest gold mine in the world. <laughs> so that's why I would prefer, you know, people with industry experience, uh, seeing company presentations themselves, ignore mainstream research, and, you know, brainstorm with people you meet on Twitter or, you know, even, and also put out stuff on Twitter. You know, don't be, don't be embarrassed to put stuff out because if you put stuff out, then people will actually engage with you and you yeah. never know what's going to come back to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's kind of spot on, and it's it's something that I'm trying to change in my process is trying to talk to more people, especially now in a generation like I think I think there will become an edge as like the generation whether it's Gen Z millennials like they just don't like picking up the phone and 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 dialing and talking to people or going and meeting people face to face, so um, you know maybe there is some sort of edge there and 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 actually doing doing the calls and meeting the people and 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 kind of doing that you know boots on the ground research well i think even hedge funds hate doing that now yeah um and also the other edge you have is uh, you know compliance wise not saying anything wrong compliance wise but you know when you're in a hedge fund um you have certain restrictions who you speak to for obvious reasons um because not because they think you're going to do an insider information, but they don't want the risk of you having inside information, which obviously, you know, everyone has to be very careful and diligent about these things. And it's a, you know, it's a illegal and ethical situation as well. But, but the thing is, they would maybe, I'm just saying maybe, if I'm looking at uh, a rig company, maybe they would stop me from speaking with a rig operator. I'm just saying, yeah. but it would have enhanced my view of how the industry works. Um, that's that's one thing. And then even more simply, the hedge fund guy, which you know, I, I jokingly call them all monkeys because you know we're sometimes forced to operate like we're in a troop of monkeys. You know, they play a different game. You're you're on a trading floor and you're asked to make money month in, month out. You think the guy who buys uh, you know a rig company on a hedge fund desk, if he makes 10%, he's going to take the money and move on. Yeah. He doesn't really care about the depth he's going to go to or, or this and that. Or maybe his boss tells him, you know what, uh, you know, I want to hedge out the oil risk or I want to hedge out the rig risk. So buy Valaris and short Transocean and some nonsense like that. So these, game, these guys, they play a different game, which 
I, I joke that they're monkeys, but actually they're very, very smart people yeah. that are forced to play a different game. So our edge is to play the opposite game sometimes. So when you have, when you step back and say, you know, you as Brandon, I mean, what's your holding period? Say, you know, say you're like, you know that Valaris is a triple. Do you really give a shit if Valaris misses the quarter or, you know, how it's going to move? Or do you really care about speaking to the Goldman's analyst on Valaris if you can have access to the rig operators and also triangulating what, you know, some guy on Twitter said about Petrobras's uh, uh, offshore uh, right. uh, tenders? I mean, that, that, that's much more interesting and valuable for the long-term trajectory of and the actual juice of the trade mm -hmm. than the quarters. Yeah, and that's why most quarter like qu quarterly earnings are just such a joke because, like, you listen to the Q and A, and everything is about next quarter or this quarter or changing margins by you know point oh two percent or like like none of it matters. Like if you if 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 your scope is longer than a quarter or even you know two or three quarters, like you're better off just kind of skipping the Q and A section entirely. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, for the big companies, it's becoming. Uh is becoming nonsense i mean and yeah. also it actually proves the point that what i'm saying that today's mainstream research is kind of useless because they're focusing on stuff we don't care about yep it's it's for it's designed for a different game it's designed for mass consumption you know maybe we should call it that it's like TikTok investing i mean they, you know these guys these professionals that make fun of mem investors but in reality, that's kind of what they're doing as well. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that's actually a great point. You know what? That might be the title of this podcast, How to Avoid hey. TikTok Investing. TikTok but, Investing, no, I like I mean, it. It's, it's, it's very moment. true. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very true. And the other thing, I think, in terms of just content creation and like what actually matters, I, you know, I've got, I, I spoke to another friend that runs a very long, um, long-term focus fund. Um, really, they'll hold names literally forever. And the amount of backward looking analysis they do and just trying to understand the history of an industry and how it's evolved over time, they spend probably the majority of their research figuring that out, how, how an industry went from zero to where it is now, not, you know, okay, it's here now, what do I think is going to happen in the next 10 years? Um, which is like very different than how a lot of people think. It's like, oh, you take today, you put in your five-year DCF and you try to guess what the cash flows will look like. Um, but it goes back to, you know, the idea of like, okay, like how has the industry evolved? Like what's the competition? What's the earnings power? How durable is that earnings power? Um, you know, how much can it withstand competition? And you learn all of that by studying the past, which a lot of people think is boring and not as useful as, as projecting into the future. Oh, that's absolutely right. And um, for example, on the offshore rigs, that was the hint. Or in the oil space, that was the hint to invest in because, you know, that was in the corner of the FT. I was, I was comparing today's rates with 2014 rates. And in 2014, the setup was very similar. You know, there was a demand surge and supply wasn't coming on yet. So that's, that's the trigger. Or for example, in the oil space, how can you understand the supply crunch in energy if you don't understand the fact that shale inviscerated as much as many billions as uh, i don't know probably subprime <laughs> so yeah the fact that shale destroyed so much capital um had as much to do with why private equity is not in the energy space as much as esg probably so yeah. once you understand that history 
and also you speak to people and understand their scars, because a lot of people were scarred on the energy space, <laughs> then you understand why we were setting up for an energy crisis. So I, yeah. I'm 100% with your guy that, you know, you need to see the history. And sometimes um, the history is a, is a good predictor of the future. And also it depends on how, how long ago something happened. So for example, the shale blow up was five years ago. So it's fresh in people's memory. But the tech blow up was 20 years ago. So, you know, the mem guys and, uh, you know, the guys that were running uh, levered long tech last year, well, you know, it's a new generation because the old guys blew up 20 years ago. Yep. Um, so, you know, th this matters, you know, this memory cycle, I, I find it fascinating to understand what the memory cycle uh, of the participants is. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's getting shorter and shorter. <laughs> yep. No, I just, and, you know, speaking of this whole conversation, I just finished this book, Capital Returns, you know, which is an obvious, hey. like, you know, obvious read. Wow, you, you mean this one? Yeah. <laughs> we got, look at that. We, it's on our desk. <laughs> it's, it's the only, it's the only book I keep on my desk. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's such a simple yet powerful way of looking at investment opportunities. Um, and, you know, you could, as, as, as I was reading this, I just kept thinking like, wow, like, does that explain a lot of the mining metals and commodity space right now? Um, and it's just, it's just, you know, so, so, so impactful. So, you know, anybody, I think anybody should, should, should read this. I feel late to the party reading it, you know, just, just this year, but, uh, you know, that, 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 that book is fantastic. It's a fantastic book. I think everyone should have it on their desk. Really. It's, it's a good, I keep it on my desk because it's a useful reminder about the mm. simple things, you know, the simple things. For example, yep. you know, the, the chapter on oil, it worked the other way around. The guy was actually going on about why there was overinvestment and everything yep. blew up. And then if, if you turn it the other way around to today, you're like, oh, that's why things rallied like they rallied because yep. the opposite thing happened. <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. So, Shrub, this has been a sweet conversation, man. Um, I'm Loved glad we it. got to do, again. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad we got to do round two. We'll do round three next year, of course. Hey. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've got a couple questions that I ask everybody and I forgot sure. your answers to the, uh, final questions. So this will be fun, but, uh, where can people go to, uh, you know, learn more about you, interact with you and all that? Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm definitely not on LinkedIn or any stuff like that. So on Twitter, <laughs> I am, uh, at a G N O S T O X X X agnosto X X X or which is shrub. It's uh, sometimes I change my name. I'm Strawberry uh, Capital. Now I'm Shrub GBT. I've evolved into an AI now. Um, but uh, I'm always there and people can, uh, can find me there. And then the last question, if you could have dinner with anyone from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Oh, man. Last time I said Hendrix. Um, nowadays, you know what? I mean, finance guy, I, I think the best guy I would have dinner with would be Druck. Druck is, uh, Druck is the goat. Yeah, Druck is the goat. That's the one guy I would like to meet from finance. And then otherwise, you know, probably like an Aussie or <laughs> Druck and Aussie together. That'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Maybe, maybe it'll happen one day. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> that'd be wild. All right, Shrub. This has been sweet. Best All of right, luck man. for the rest of the year. Really enjoyed and, uh, it. We'll we'll roll this back and do it again next year. Awesome. You take care, bud. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. 
Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.